Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Critics of the Bible puzzle over cursed fig trees and bristle at violence in the Old Testament, all the while ambivalent to modern atrocities carried out in the name of civil society. One need look no further than the forgotten children of Syria, the devastation in Yemen, or the violence committed against migrant children in this country to understand why biblical metaphor employs the currency of violence. We are shocked by biblical violence because we are blind to the violence already in our hearts. The lesson of the fig tree is a warning to those who dwell in cities built by violence. There is an expiration date on God's patience with the cruelty of human hands. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 349 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we explained how the writer was bringing the prophetic teaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah to bear on the entrance into Jerusalem. And now, as we turn to verse 18 forward, once the question of good figs and bad figs come into play, one cannot but think of Jeremiah chapter 24. At Jeremiah 24, God says that he's taking care of those who are being exiled from the city when the Babylonians are attacking, but those who are left over and those who fled to Egypt, those are the ones he's not taking care of. So the ones who are in danger apparently, are the good figs that God is making a good crop out of. The bad crop comes from those who stay in the city or who self-exile. The ones who try to take care of themselves are the problem. The ones who completely count on the provision of God, those are the ones who receive the blessing. To the human eye, it appears that the ones who have fled who take care of themselves, are safe, and the ones who are carted off into exile are not safe. This teaching, the teaching of Caesar, the teaching that is informed by the teaching of Satan, that the things of this world are precisely as they appear, that those who are powerful in this world actually do bear the power they seem to bear. That's the wicked teaching that Jesus is trying to overturn and This was precisely why Peter was called the Satan, because Satan believed, Jesus, if you have to go on the cross, you're going to lose. Because, why? Because Peter believes that the cross actually ends things 
which implies that Caesar has some kind of power that's not of God, whereas Jesus has to correct this satanic teaching. No, God's power is always the power, even if it appears that God has abandoned you. Before we jump into the text, I would like to take the opportunity on the podcast to read a couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 24, starting with verse 3. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. That's verse 5. And I'll skip ahead to verse 8 so we can jump into Matthew. But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, Indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. It's interesting that the ones who remain are linked to kingly power, and to Egypt, and to the city in Jeremiah, and the ones who go into exile are very much like those who were in some way helpless coming into the temple just a moment ago and turning to Jesus for healing. It's always the ones who are dependent, who are weak in human eyes. The ones who not only don't fall for Satan's hoax in Matthew, but because of their circumstance cannot. If you were taken into captivity and into exile— You can't even fantasize about the illusion Satan proposed to Jesus earlier in Matthew because it's out of your reach. You are in exile. You are in captivity. You are homeless. God is your only hope. We keep coming back to this basic point. Now, Jesus is coming from the outside, marching on the city to take back Jerusalem from the imposters. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And why shouldn't he, Richard? In the Gospel of Matthew, he's the Lord of the harvest. You can't muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. Jesus is the ox. He's been working. Now he'd like to take something to eat. I wonder if he's going to find any good figs to eat in Jerusalem. Matthew is very clever in the way that he talks about Jesus being hungry one time, and it just happens to be a time that Jesus is going to use his hunger as a way to teach his disciples. And let's not miss how strange this entrance is. Jesus already entered into Jerusalem. It was a lot of fanfare. Everything big happened, and you know, the Hosanna, and da da da. And then he left. He slept off in Bethany where the poor people live, and then he came back. And at this entry, there are no steeds, there are no palm leaves, there are no garments on the ground or shouting in joy, the son of David. No, this time he comes in and he's hungry and he's going to reap the crop that is his due. Seeing 
a lone fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Again, people think this is unfair. Why didn't Jesus call someone in with pesticide and fertilizer to water the tree and take care of it? My dear friends, the answer is clear. If after hearing the law and the prophets in Matthew, you still don't bear fruit worthy of repentance, you are worthy of God's curse. You are worthy of condemnation. It's like the parable of the talents. If you don't do something with the teaching I've given you, then I'm going to take it away and we're going to be done. Because enough is enough. There is an expiration date on grace. We've talked about this before. I know that in human psychology, you are told that a parent's love is never supposed to have an expiration date. But that's not true. And that's why everybody has problems. Because when you talk like that, you justify abuse and people step all over each other. That's not acceptable. There is accountability and there is an expiration date on grace. It's called the judgment. And the judgment here in Matthew is at hand. And the Lord saw the tree and he deemed that it was not worthy. And so he cursed it to remain unworthy. End of subject. And we can see that this prophetic sign act falls right in line with other sign acts of the prophets, just like the overturning of the money changers. Here, he is entering into the city and showing that when the city does not bear fruit, it's going to be destroyed. And we just talked about Jerusalem. When Jerusalem stopped bearing fruit, Jerusalem was destroyed. And that's what Jeremiah was teaching. Jesus is teaching the same thing. If the city is not going to bear fruit, then we have to get rid of the city. In the scriptural mindset, you're either producing good fruit or you're not. A farmer doesn't fall in love with his trees. If a tree is not producing fruit, then you cut it down and you plant a new tree. I mean, that's what you have to do. Or you cut off the branches and graft new branches in. But you don't just say, oh, you know... Maybe if I just sing more songs to the tree, it'll produce more fruit. No, you don't have time to sing songs to trees. If it's not producing fruit, you have to replace it. The only way to replace it is by first digging it up. This sign act is showing that just like the whole sacrificial system was a den of thieves where people were trying to steal from each other and then justify it through sacrifices, this is a city where people come to perpetuate themselves, and the city has got to go now. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Here we go. The disciples are amazed. Are they amazed at the correct thing? Are they amazed at the Lord's teaching? Or are they amazed that those who stayed behind in Jerusalem were unworthy. Is that a thing to be amazed at? Have the disciples heard the teaching of Jeremiah? Do they understand? 
are they still trying to figure out if Jesus is Harry Potter and can do magic with his wand? What are they amazed at? Here it's clear to my scriptural ears that their amazement is a condemnation of the disciples. What more does Jesus need to say for you to understand what's going on here? The reaction that I expected was fear. You see Jesus come in and curse a fig tree and it dies right then and there. You don't say, dang, that was fast. (laughs) I mean, what you say is, oh, no, I hope he doesn't do that to me. (laughs) Here, Jesus is more akin to Voldemort when he wields the curse of Ada Kedavra. He just cursed the tree. You don't see Voldemort kill something and say, ooh, that was cool. You say, please don't do it to me. And the fact that they're not afraid tells you they're not hearing his teaching. They don't understand that he is the Lord's anointed one. Or if they think he is, they understand it as us against the Romans, not the Messiah first against Jerusalem. They still don't hear Jeremiah, let alone Jesus. And the danger is that if they aren't afraid— one problem may be that they might assume that they're on Jesus' side. And that's very dangerous when people start saying, I have God on my side, I have Jesus on my side, assuming that they're doing precisely what Jesus wants, and that's how they know they're so good. And they can say, wow, you know, it is sad to see how badly Jesus judges other people. And it is really sad to see how people fall into trouble and fall in hard times. Boy, am I glad that I've got Jesus, because that won't happen to me. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In my estimation, Jesus's response here at this point was very patient and merciful because he is still making the effort as a teacher to reorient them towards the mission. Remember that in Exodus, God effectively moves Mount Sinai into the wilderness with the pillar of fire. The light of the Torah goes out into the wilderness, away from the top of the mountain. We were talking about the pillar, Richard, earlier in our discussion of Galatians, and contrasting it with the pillar of the foundation of a human edifice that ties to this mechanism of moving the light of God's instruction as a sheltering for the people out in the wilderness. In Matthew, that mechanism is represented when you see in the baptismal gospel the mountain of instruction appearing in Galilee. Jesus, in fact, is going to move the mountain. It's not about moving a physical mountain. It's not about the magic trick. It's about the teaching. If you trust in this instruction in Jeremiah, you will understand how it's possible that those in captivity in Babylon are God's people and those in Jerusalem, the remnant, are under condemnation because it's not the city or the mountain that's the reference, it's God's instruction. I always liken this with the teaching about the camel and the eye of the needle. Everyone wants to figure out a way they can keep their riches and get into the kingdom of heaven as they try to squeeze somehow this camel through the eye of a needle which is impossible. How many of the disciples are able to move fig trees or mountains? 
zero. So if you can't move the mountain, then you must not have faith and you must doubt. The fact that they can't do this shows that they don't have faith. Now, this is, of course, the worst thing for a disciple to hear <laughs> in that you don't trust me or the teaching. If you trusted it just a little bit, we don't have the grain of mustard here like we had in Mark. If you just trusted a little bit and didn't doubt, you could do the same thing. It's not that big a deal. Having faith in the teaching is the big deal because it goes against what you see. When you see this drama of power playing out of God's power versus King Nebuchadnezzar's power, God's power versus Pontius Pilate's power, God's power versus Satan's power. It is impossible for the human being, a biological piece of flesh, to wrap their head around this teaching that even when I am oppressed by the powers of this world, there is still grace from God flowing at that moment. That God's grace and mercy are still present even at that moment when I am afflicted by the powers of this world. This is the teaching which they do not trust, and this is the teaching that they absolutely doubt, and therefore are not able to do this cool trick with the tree or move any mountains. There's an interesting parallel here also, not just with Jeremiah, but with Deuteronomy. The Lord is entering Jerusalem, and he wipes out the fig tree the way that the Lord wipes out the Canaanites in the land. And then he turns to his disciples, and the message they should be getting is if he could do this to the fig tree, the remnant of Israel that was in the city, he could do it to us. They should be afraid. They shouldn't understand it as God is wiping out the foreigners so we can live here. They should understand it the way Deuteronomy intended, that just as God wiped out the Canaanites, he can wipe you out too. And that's what's hopeful to my ears about verse 21, he still hasn't taken the decision to wipe them out, but he is definitely pressuring them. It's hopeful in the way that prophetic judgment is hopeful because it still presumes that there's a chance you'll repent. But for the remnant that clung to the city instead of clinging to God's instruction in exile— they are beyond hope. There's an expiration date on God's mercy. In our theologies and our various traditions, we try to invent ways to take ourselves off the hook by twisting and distorting God's mercy into a bottomless credit account. But that's not Scripture. In Scripture, there comes a point where the tree either bears fruit or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, the Lord of the harvest will destroy it. Like any good farmer, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive, as always, when Jesus talks about prayer, it is dislodged from Jerusalem. He's talking about prayer in a context where the ones whom God favored were in exile without a temple. If you trust my commandment 
and you preach this gospel to the nations, as I am instructing you to do, then it will bear fruit, and you will be useful to me, and you will reap what you have sown. That's what it means to receive. It doesn't mean, dear God, can my candidate please win the election? I prayed and I really believed. This is neo-paganism, please. If you're praying right now and hoping for your guy to win, please quote me. Father Mark said that I'm a pagan for doing that because you're praying for your son of God to win the election. It's silly and destructive. You trust in God's wisdom, which is his teaching, so that you would reap that which the teaching sows for the sake of God's people, which includes the Gentiles. People like to use this verse, but they edit it. They say, well, we asked in prayer for a thing, and then we didn't receive it. What happened? Did God abandon us? I don't understand. It's because they missed the middle part. You know, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Oh, no, we really believed. They're like, well, let me explain to you believe. Believe means trust. AA has a very practical teaching around this. They say, praying only for knowledge of God's will and the strength to carry it out. Those are the only things you're allowed to pray for. You don't pray for stuff. You read scripture, you find out what God wants. And the only prayer is, I hope I don't fail in performing my duty today. And if I do, please have mercy. Lately, the parish has been getting emails from political organizations trying to give us instructions and support materials to share with our people so that Christians can vote for the right candidate. And of course, I very patiently and systematically unsubscribe to all these lists. But it's worth mentioning here how misled and how far astray American Christians are from the teaching of Jesus Christ. It is so evil that Christians are spending time in the name of Jesus Christ to campaign for a candidate and to make sure that Christians know the right person to vote for. You can't endorse any candidate. That's not our business as clergy. Our business is the kingdom of God. Father Alexander Schmemann's famous quote, no to theology, no to the church, and yes to God, should in this moment be amended. No to theology, no to the church, no to the state, and yes to God, yes to the kingdom. It's depressing that Christians are using the precious time we've been given to do the work of Satan to further the cause of human tyranny, which is exactly that for which the remnant in Jerusalem are condemned. It needs to be said, Richard, so that people understand how serious this is and how high the stakes are. I was reading about a group that does Bible studies in U.S. Congress and in state houses all across the country. And when I heard about this, my response was, you know, as soon as we see that money is being allocated to taking care of the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, 
and not for chariots and horses and swords and rockets and tanks and aircraft carriers, I will know that it has borne fruit. Because if you use scripture as a weapon for Caesar to wield against the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, then you further the cause of Satan. You have now created seven times the disciple of Satan than you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.